Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. In this episode, we'll hear two perspectives on attracting people to the industry. One from someone who's seen the changes we've been through over time, and the other from a newcomer who's just joined us. Both share a passion as big as mine for what is possible. With me is Rachel Eaves, corporate communications and sustainability veteran, and Holly Cook, geologist and storyteller at Think and Act Differently. Welcome. Hello there. Thank you. It's great to be here. Rachel, I have to ask, from communications roles, aviation, mining, you've had quite the career. Are you able to tell us a little bit about how you ended up here today? It's funny that you called me a veteran before. Well, actually, I'm probably quite proud to be a veteran in the industry. How did I end up here? Look, it probably came from from where I, where I come from. I come from Darwin and I guess mining felt like it was an industry that was quite familiar to me, sort of familiar kind of landscapes and familiar kind of people. And so look, after working in big cities and different places around the world, mining felt like it was kind of coming home. I love that. Just like being at the dinner table with family. Yeah, that's right. Now, Holly, right at the other end of the spectrum from our veteran here, we have our spring chicken, quite new to the industry. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up here today? I didn't think I'd be within a country mile of the mining industry. So this is this is an interesting reflection. It has to come back to being a kid. I grew up in nature. I was constantly curious about the natural world. I felt deeply, deeply connected to the earth. And I was always asking questions and science came naturally. I was, loved chemistry. I loved my physics. University, smashed chemistry, smashed physics. Actually didn't smash physics. I failed physics a little bit. Oh, we all but, did. It's okay. Yeah, but yeah, that's character building, right? And then I took geology as an elective and then I, it's, it's the accidental geologist story. It's so common. But I fell more and more in love with this science that really enabled connection to the natural world through understanding. And so it really just started with, oh, aren't volcanoes cool and aren't ocean basins cool and isn't Martian geology cool? And then as you grow older in geology, you realize that our dependence on the earth and her minerals like entirely constitutes our existence. And it's that same beautiful curiosity about nature that lends itself to building frameworks with how we should interact with with the planet. I've gone on this journey of being a curious nature kid to still being a curious nature kid, but with this real bent towards I have to care about mining because I really care about how humans use the earth. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Don't ever lose that curiosity that you bring. And I think our listeners are already getting a feel for why you've got Storyteller in your title. Rachel, this industry has changed quite a lot since you've been in it. I mean, even since I've been in it, and that's getting up there as well, I must admit. How important is it that this industry sets its aspirations in a future tone to attract the next generation of workers? Even when I started out, and I started out working for Western Mining, which was one of the original Australian mining companies, and, I mean, I was attracted to my role because it was actually one of the first mining companies really to push sustainability. And I worked on one of the first sustainability reports in Australia, and I was really attracted to the idea of trying to create a, a different future. They really wanted to improve the industry. And over sort of the first five years of pushing sustainability in Australia, I just saw so many improvements. Holly, just growing on a little bit of what Rachel said, what do you think the perception of mining industry actually is 
in amongst the community and maybe even in amongst the students that you meet with at university every day? That's a massive question. And the more I talk to different people, different ages, different communities, the more I realise there's just no one size fits all. And I can't possibly claim to know the massive spectrum of perspective here, but I've got a couple of checkpoints and one's like my 17-year-old sister. I've got another who are graduating economic geologists who are my age who still feel funny about mining. I know people who are very attracted by the lifestyle that a mining job can provide. But I think that Gen Z is is a hot topic because mining is a feeling and mining feels like a value judgment to a lot of young people because we're so driven by purpose. And I guess every new generation is, but I mean, this one, this generation still is, we're driven by purpose and by a sense of doing good. Uh, And then you sort of fast forward to people my age, graduates who perhaps have gone through a science degree who are pretty educated on what our Earth's dependency looks like and they still feel uncomfortable with heading into the industry. You know, I'm still on campus. I see that there are things like protests going on about renewable transitions, about reducing our greenhouse gases and all of us on this line know that mining plays an exponential role in that future. And so how can it be so gravely misunderstood among a generation that just wants to see a better world? So I think it's quite tragic and the solution's complicated changing narrative is complicated but it is a real missed opportunity because mining has interesting problems and it's part of an interesting future yeah look i would say the things that attracted you to the industry and the things you're feeling are not too dissimilar uh, to what was going on in my generation it's been a constant battle and we do have some work to do to work out how to improve our story and and to get people to understand that you know rachel i'd love to hear your perspective on how the industry tells its own story The industry hasn't been that great at telling its own story. A lot of people who are very familiar with the industry realise that the industry has really done a lot of good. You know, there's been a lot of very positive gains through, you know, an enormous amount of work that has been done in the community, enormous amount of work that's been done around employee safety. You know, there's amazing gains that have been made around environmental stewardship in the mining industry. And anyone who actually works in the mining industry knows that there are lots of very, very qualified and talented people who are working on these challenges all the time and making massive improvements in these areas. But we haven't been very good at telling our story externally because a lot of these things are are really complicated and we haven't been telling our story very simply. I guess that's where I've found a home for myself in the mining industry. As a communications person, I'm always looking at how can I put myself in my audience's shoes? How can I think about the average Australian? And how can I describe what's happening in simple terms to other people that are not familiar with the industry? Yeah, it's so important. And and I, I think, you know, touching on the topic of communications, we always say for someone to listen, they like to hear what what's in it. What's in it for me? What am I listening to? What am I resonating with? Holly, what's resonated for you as you've come into this industry? with the communications that you're hearing and, and seeing from us? What initially re- resonated with me was connecting that we don't just dig holes because we like digging holes. We dig holes because the earth has offered us something in, um, in its minerals and its metals that go on to 
build the society that we've become very comfortable taking part in. When that stopped resonating for me is when it felt like you saw an industry change its face without changing its philosophy. Every mining company update, it's sort of marketing to say we're providing future metals, we're providing green metals. Why isn't the younger generation thankful for us? We're providing them with their electric vehicles. And that sits a little uncomfortable with me because, yeah, it's true. Copper goes into every piece of tech that we all enjoy, but something about it feels like we're changing our narrative without particularly changing our way of doing things. I might be hugely ignorant here. I'm still really young. I'm still figuring things out. But where mining stopped resonating for me with its messaging, at least, is that we struggle to, to connect ourselves to a bigger picture because I think the story that we put out there is trucks and outback and open pits. And it's not surprising that when people, when young people see that message, it's not, it's, not, it's not a story that resonates with them. We're actually really good at putting out that message, which is hard hats and, and, and dirt. But what would be more interesting to me is if we change our philosophy to be putting earth and social stewardship at the center of our operations. And that's why I'm just so proud to be with Tad because I just see it through and through. But it's almost to me, if we can change what's going on in the mechanics of our place in the system, which is providing metals for the future, it's not, it's not just about changing that narrative of metals for the future. It's actually really changing what we put at the center of how we work. And that, in my mind, the narrative comes after that. It, it doesn't come before. Don't ever be worried about being uh, young and still figuring things out. I wouldn't use the word young anymore and I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> Holly, I think the minute we've answered all our questions, what a boring world this would, would be. I think question asking is so super important. Rachel, this is such a really interesting topic around putting our philosophy at the centre. And you mentioned earlier that some of the work you did in sustainability reporting, and it would be amiss of us to not dig into that a little bit. I mean, can you just explain what sustainability reporting is uh, for for a mining house or for a listed company? Realistically, in the most simple terms, sustainability reporting is reporting on our impact to our stakeholders. So our impact to communities, our impact on society at large, our impact on employees, environment, um, which includes greenhouse. And look, when, when sustainability reporting first started out, industry set ourselves some really fantastic targets in all those areas and we reported against those targets and you know we we really achieved a lot in many of those areas and then what happened sort of about 10 years in is that we sort of picked off all the low-hanging fruit not only did we pick off the low-hanging fruit sustainability reporting became a bit of an accounting exercise and you know we sort of looked at incremental improvements here and there you know I actually after gosh sort of about 15 years in the industry and working mainly in the sustainability area I actually left the industry for a little while because I just couldn't see those gains that I wanted to see in the sustainability area one of the reasons that attracted me back to the industry was that idea of creating a really different mining future. And that is really taking a big step back and not looking at incremental improvement, but looking at, okay, well, how could we design things completely differently so that we are seeing really 
big gains and how could the industry really see itself in a completely different way so that our gains are so much more. In real terms, that is, you know, how do you do a few things around the edges to get better, say, energy efficiency? Well, looking at, well, how do we design a mine that is completely 100% renewable? Like, how, how do we do that? You know, step back and what does a different mine look like in the future? And to me, I guess, that is a different version of sustainability. That's really the, the big picture stuff. And that's really what's, what's attracted me back to mining. It's almost like that word sustainability has evolved in its very self as uh, the word resilience is used a lot these days in the industry. And it's, it's so important that we design our operations to be resilient to the changes in technology and society's expectations and everything that's going on around us. It's such an interesting topic. It's a real step change, I think. It's a massive step change. And uh, we're just at the beginning of this, I think. I have to ask Holly, did you ever read a sustainability report before you joined? No. <laughs> no. No, I couldn't really even tell you what was in it. Oh, it's just magic listening to Rachel. I kind of think that's the secret sauce because I really respect boldness. And I think when you hide from problems and try and sweep them under the rug, everyone knows they're still there except you're just kind of sweeping under the rug. And what I love seeing in mining is when we actually, in a weird sort of way, we sort of embrace our what's wrong with us and we embrace our challenges because I think problems attract problem solvers. And if mining had all the answers, then this, we just wouldn't be here. We'd, be have, we'd have nothing to talk about. And I think that when we can put out our challenges as interesting and, then, and they're necessary and they're complicated and they need fresh eyes, redesigning the, the modern mind needs a fresh set of eyes. I really think that you get people responding to that. Redesigning what a future mind looks like means head on addressing these challenges. And I think that when you're trying to talk to an audience that doesn't really like you, such as young adults, I think that there's a sort of respect in, in that honesty and in that boldness. And so I think it's beautiful to see, Rachel, that, that that's where, where, where your headset is. But I also think that if that vulnerability can be put out there more as actually a set of really interesting critical challenges, I kind of think people will respond to that. I tend to agree, and we're certainly seeing that in Think and Act Differently with our approach to the crowd and, and people rallying around problem statements and, and like-minded people coming together to to want to solve problems, not necessarily rocking up with, with answers. I, I think there's a, there's a challenge here, Rach, in that sustainability reporting, it, which is the very, very end point of environmental and social governance information, happens once a year and, and the target market for that document, and quite rightly so, is is an investor. How do companies think about getting that sustainability message out, not just in that public reporting, which is required as a listed company, but to these other audiences that Holly's talking to us about? I mean, clearly, you know, as Holly demonstrated, she hasn't read a sustainability report or she hadn't read a sustainability report. <laughs> we know what she's doing oh, tonight. my boss is opposite so me. I could... <laughs> so that's probably not the best way of um, of telling our message I think that our stories that we tell have got to be more sophisticated and I think our stories have got to be honest as well. One of the changes that I did actually see in sustainability reporting over time is that I did see sort of 20 years ago uh, people being a lot more honest and leading with their challenges and then over time 
I think they have become more marketing documents. They've also become more difficult to understand. I mean, things like greenhouse gas reporting, I mean, that's that's really difficult stuff to understand. We've got to be more open and honest about our challenges and I think we've got to actually ask for help. I think we've got to lay out this is where we want to go and, and we need help from other industries. We need help from experts to help us solve some of these big challenges. But if we don't explain what our challenges are in simple terms, then it's going to be really hard for us to get people from outside our industry to come and help us with those challenges. Holly, do you want to build on that a bit? I do. And it's and it's something that you said when you framed the question to Rachel. I'm trying to recover the fact that I've never read a sustainability report, but I'm trying to soul search as to why I haven't. And I think it's when you said it's sort of made for the investor or geared for the investor, because I sort of sit back and think, Holly, you're a bit of a greenie at heart. Why don't you get into these sort of corporate sustainability reports? And it's because I feel like they're not made for me. I feel like they're still made for the machine. They're not sort of made for someone on the outside to actually understand what's going on inside the company. And I'm not sure if it's in the mechanics of how it's told or if it's in if it's in the actual the media, like instead of it being however hundred many page booklet, how else could you tell the heartbeat of your message to an audience that that really has no involvement with your business or with your company, but still really want to know what's going on. I agree that there is a lot of good being done in the industry. I keep coming back to the idea that the best narrative was is ones that's wholeheartedly backed up by really bold change. And I'm not convinced that authenticity in quote unquote change in mining can come through until the way that we mine looks radically different to what we would consider mining. Because I'm not convinced that people want to see mining be better at the fringes. I'm pretty convinced that people want to see mining be better in its entire concept of operation, in its entire philosophy of operating. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I'm wondering what your perspective is. I mean, I think of it a little bit like the best stories told are ones told by others, not ones that you tell yourself. Do we have a strong enough advocacy going on around our sector where others are telling our good stories? I think what's really changed is actually the expectations of different stakeholders. I think previously investors really only wanted to see returns. That was their main criteria. And I think what we've seen happen is that with many people like investors, like communities, like governments and society in general, as their expectations have changed, then also mining companies as well, we've been able to put a position forward to investors that, well, actually we do need to spend money in these areas and we do need to improve in these areas even if there's a cost even if we make less money by doing this then you know this is something that we should be doing and I don't think previously investors supported that but I think now investors do support that and so that's what's made a major difference. Perhaps to come back to the point, which is the sustainability reports feel like they're made for investors. They're not made for the layman to read them. The layman is who we're talking about here, right? We're talking about what does a general audience who doesn't really care to know the mechanics of your business think about the sustainability report that's come out of your business. And um, 
to say that perhaps it needs to be posing radically different themes about sustainability, mining still feels like it's, if I were feeling brave and simplistic, I would say that mining is sort of taking stuff out the ground so that we can make money off of it, not respecting the environment in the way that we take things out of the ground and then that money that we make with it goes back into something bigger than mining. It sort of just feels like it's mining out for itself. If we can change that feeling, then sustainability reports might have more of a glimmer of authenticity about them. For as long as we're calling things waste, for example, I'm not convinced your sustainability report sounds authentic. Holly, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk about your current project work that you're doing. I know you're doing your honours and it's a fantastic piece of work in uh, the recovery of metals from tailings dams using a new technology, well, a new mining approach called in-situ recovery. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work you're doing? So I am working with a team out of Uni Queensland, Sustainable Minerals Institute, Anita Pabaka fox and Laura Jackson, Carl Spanler at Uni Adelaide. But the actual project is about looking at what mining has has classically called like it's rubbish, it's waste. So if you want to get to an ore body, sometimes you have to dig up a lot of rock to get there. And it's really an exercise in what mining has called valuable because what's valuable once, it'll change into the future. Mining produces processing waste. So you dig up the rock, you do some industrial chemistry on it, you chuck it through a processing plant, you add some water, and it tips out into a big, we call them tailings dam. And the wonderful thing about nature is that nature knows no such thing as waste. Nature only knows chalcopyrite, yes, it knows chalcosite, yes, but it also knows cobalt and it knows indium and it knows rare earth elements. And there's there's a really rich chemical constituency of our ore bodies, which we've only extracted one element, but all of the other ones have ended up in what we've called rubbish. But that's that's rubbish. It isn't rubbish. It's actually the next generation of I would call pretty sustainable mining. So my project is all about looking at Prominent Hills Tailings Dam for all of these really exciting goodies. I certainly think you've just signed on about 50 other people to want to do this project (laughs) with you with the enthusiasm that comes through from you. This whole approach of in-situ recovery is something that the industry has been grappling around the edges of for a little while. Do you want to try and explain what that method actually is? This is how I think about it in my head. It is mining without having to dig the hole and it's mining without having to tamper with the rest of the environment. It's really about using fluids and fluid chemistry to take ore out of the ground without having to do anything that we traditionally call mining. It's got some interesting science, some interesting engineering that needs to be smoothed out. But what I see in TAD is us calling out to the world and saying, Look at these interesting problems that we have. We want to build this good future. And we think we see that in this ISR mining method. And so I see a a really interesting, collaborative, inclusive mining method that takes more than miners to to help build. It's so interesting, Holly. And and Rach, I'd love your perspective on this. We call it ISR, so in situ recovery. But yet we call it a mining method because we're still attached to the word mining. and, and, (laughs) and, And that's what we do. Really what I'm hearing from Holly is that we're recovering the elements that we need. Get rid of the word mining. Yeah. It's, I, it's a relic. It's, it's an artifact of what used to be. How will the industry go with that, Rachel? I think um, even the word, though, in situ recovery is pretty difficult to understand. I mean, really, it's recovering metals in place, I, I guess, you know, recovering metals without moving waste. And um, I think most people would be really surprised to understand actually 
how we recover metals in a traditional sense. And I think people would be really surprised to understand many, many mines have what you call strip ratios. And what that actually means is the amount of waste that you recover to the amount of ore that you recover. And I think that the average person would be really surprised to understand that with a traditional mine, often you can be recovering only one truck of ore and then the other 10 trucks might be of waste. And so when you understand the way mining works now, then you understand why something like in situ mining is so amazing and why it is such a great opportunity. We're not the only sector grappling with this really, are we? I mean, we we hear about the the circular economy in so many different sectors and particularly for our listeners, you would head out to the curbside with your recycling bins and your general waste bins and then your green waste bins every week because we're trying to separate the wastes into usable products, things that we can go and use again and again and again and not have them end up in our landfills. It's it's kind of a similar concept really, isn't it, Holly? Mm-hmm. I, I really do think that waste is a design flaw because when we dig the earth for our minds, I kind of think it's a little irresponsible that we decide that there's waste here and that some things aren't valuable or by definition is often less than like 2% in the future it'll be less than 1% of what we're digging and so you know what's better than digging it's actually not digging not to state the obvious and that's exactly what what ISR poses to the world is can you get something out the ground without digging the hole and ISR boldly says yeah I think I can. I tend to uh, agree with you that we shouldn't use the word waste because it implies that it has no useful life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me comes back to language yet again. You know, the word mining, the word waste, um, it's what we call things becomes things that stick. Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, you're helping Holly out with a lot of the communications around the in situ recovery works. What's been your biggest insight so far as you've been helping pull this together? The biggest insight really is that we need to help people understand what we do currently so that we can paint a picture of why different methods and why a different future, why it's more than incremental change, why it's an absolute game changer. I think that unless you know what we're coming from, unless you understand that, it's really difficult to understand why we need to go to something that's so incredibly different. So how are we going to grapple with the time horizons on this, Holly? I mean, we talk about it with such enthusiasm and energy today because we can see it, we can almost taste it, it's coming. But yet you're at a research stage on a piece of work. We've spoken on other episodes about how research is is early on in the piece. This has got a while to run for us to to be able to see it in practice, I'm sure we can accelerate it, but how are we going to grapple with that? It's got to come back to sharing enthusiasm and curiosity. I think if we go back to basics about what people stick with, it's what they find kind of interesting and what they find kind of curious. And so I can't see a more honest way to bring people on the journey and get them to stay on the journey than to kind of get on top of mountains and spread out why we really, really love what we're doing. 
I don't know if that means getting on social media more. Like I, I struggle. I don't know what the tangible, tangible advice is from that, but um, it's got to come from human faces with human beating hearts, really believing in a message. I also think that the other way to keep people on the journey is like I said, tell them our problems and problems attract problem solvers and the problem solvers don't have to be in mining, but that's sort of another door into our interesting industry is to put out our interesting problems and take people on the technical ride too, getting getting technical people on side too, not just the general audience. I've been in this industry for, for many years and I've always worked in the, the sustainability, the community relations, the, the kind of project design space. And I'm always really proud of what we're doing at the time and, and what we're working on and, and proud to share that. And I think it's really important. I was taught this uh, little saying uh, once and it was each one reach one. And if just one person can tell one other person something that they're proud of, and then that continues on, then eventually these messages can get out. Rachel, you know, we've spoken a lot today about sustainability, and it's a huge reason why people either choose to come to this industry or not. But it's not the only reason. I'm sure in your time as a female in the industry, as a mum to a, a wonderful young man, uh, you've got some stories about how the industry has changed over time in other ways. Uh, would you be comfortable sharing some of the things that might be on your mind about why people, and particularly maybe our female listeners, might be thinking that this industry is not for them and maybe explain to them how it's changed? The, the industry has changed quite significantly, but realistically it's probably really only changed recently. My son's now 14 and... Um, you know, I was working for a large mining company when I was pregnant with my son. And, you know, it was only 14 years ago and sort of a week before I had my baby, I was, I was made redundant. You know, that was, that was a pretty common thing to happen. And I think there would be a lot of women in the industry of my generation who that happened to. And so we lost a lot of great women who would have left to have their children and uh, you know, they've been made redundant or they've been told that, look, you know, it's probably not going to be flexible enough for you to continue working. And so there's a lot of people who would have not come back to the industry. But look, probably the biggest change in the industry probably has been actually in the last sort of three to five years where the industry has become more flexible and it has become more human. And look, you know, I guess we've seen these changes in a lot of industries, and I think a lot of it was due to the pandemic, being able to work from home, and, you know, and those changes have flowed through to the mining industry as well. You know, the, the mining industry is such a meaty industry and such an interesting industry, and there are so many different roles within the industries you know, for scientists, for storytellers, for so many different professions that there's so many of those roles, you know, don't need to be living and working in isolated areas of Australia. I mean, you can live anywhere and do those roles. You know, I think the time is, is really now and there, there's really great opportunities for women to join the mining industry what I would also say is there's probably a group of people out there, there's probably a group of women and men who have previously worked in the industry who also should 
consider giving it another try now. It's so important we don't let those biases of the past determine the future that we're going to exist within, isn't it? That's things. Yeah, change. that's right. I think really the industry has had massive changes in the in the last three to five years. So yeah, I think it's a it's a really great time for people who have previously worked in the industry to um, consider consider coming back. Well, that's the key word there, isn't it? Whether we're talking about gender representation or just general inclusiveness of all different backgrounds uh, and experiences, uh, that word flexibility. I mean, Holly, I'd love to hear your story around how important flexibility is to you. Hugely. I couldn't be working here if I didn't have a team of people that understood that I'll work hard, but but let me work in a way that works for me. Let me finish. And Katie, you're the reason I've been able to hold a TAD job because you've recognized that, you know, finish the degree, do it in your own time, do what you need to do and contribute where you can. And um, I feel a sense of gratitude for that because it's like, if you give me the flexibility to work when and where I can, I really want to make sure I'm doing good things for you because it's a sense of, I feel, I feel thankful. I feel really thankful for it. Even the logistics of finishing off my degree, trying to be on campus, trying to do research, um, you know, how, how fantastic has been with acknowledging, you know, my honours research with still working in some capacity. If I had to present in an office nine till five, I simply couldn't do it because my, my life where I'm at in my life and, and my journey means that I'm doing unconventional work hours in unconventional places and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I wonder if that word unconventional is what you find next to the, as the definition of Holly. <laughs> I reckon so. I reckon so. It's hard for me to keep up with sometimes. <laughs> Rachel, I'm hearing words today like curious and bold and brave. Now, people that are either new to a new to a company, new to a role, new to the industry, they're really hard words to to sit in when you need to express what matters to you in having a role and having a job and having flexibility. Do you have any advice to people that are trying to articulate what they need out of their career to be successful in terms of how they can go about firstly discovering that but then articulating that? Yeah, it's really hard when you first join an industry to ask people for what you want. Well, for one, you probably don't don't quite know what you want uh, when you when you join an industry. People say that in your first six months of joining anywhere, the questions, those questions that you have, are the most valuable questions that almost you have through your career, because you know you haven't been as influenced yet. And so I think in the first six months particularly, you really need to be brave to to ask those questions and understand that there's a lot of people sitting around you that will also want to know the answers too, that will be too scared to ask the questions because they feel that they've been there too long and, and that they should know. One of the things that I do is I often, because I guess because I've been in the the industry for quite some time, I often say, look, you know, I've been in the industry for, you know, 25 years, but I don't know this. And so can you explain this to me? And then I look around the the room and I find that there's a lot of other people that have been around for a long time as well who also don't know the answer to the question, but they're relieved that somebody else has asked. 
So I think when you're you're new to the industry, use that time to to basically ask, you know, whatever questions that you want, because there's a good chance that everybody else sitting around the table will be pretty relieved that you've asked the question. I can think of many meetings I've sat in and I'm often grateful that somebody has asked the question that I was too embarrassed to ask and, and it's only as I've gotten older I've realised there's no need to be embarrassed. It's just a genuine question asking opportunity and we should take it every step. I, I absolutely love that advice. Holly, what about yourself? Well, I felt, and this was totally self-imposed, but I did feel like a bit of an idiot for my first couple of months getting to know mining because I just, I had not the faintest idea, but what I quickly realized is that as soon as I started voicing these questions, they were, I don't know if validated is the right word, but I particularly worked with Brett quite a lot in my first six months. And every question I thought was stupid actually opened up to a really great conversation. And when you've got people around the the spring chickens who actually really support and want to listen to the, the, the sort of silly questions and the, maybe the naive perspectives of the spring chickens, then it's a form of mentorship. And never in tat at least have I ever felt like I'm asking a silly question because sometimes the silliest, most simple questions of all are really fundamental conversations that you all have been happy to have with me. So I've always taken the philosophy, and this is one that I particularly take when I go to school kids and talk to them about geology or science or whatever but like the questions are so much more important than the answers you know there are such things as perhaps smart answers but questions are wise you know the kind of question that you're posing frames your entire following conversation so questions I think are deeply powerful and I've always felt like the the emphasis in my team with you has been ask the ask the question. There are so many things that I have had to check myself on Holly, because you've been asking questions and I've realized <laughs> that I just do it because, and that's not a very good response. So thank you for asking us the questions that you do <laughs> and please don't stop that. I think we could talk for hours about this topic, but I'd love to just get one little bit of hope or vision for the future from both of you about, about our sector. What do you see happening over the next 5, 10, 15 years and why should people get involved? Look, I think that now's a great time to join the industry because there's opportunities to work with new tech. There's opportunities to really look at the industry in a completely different way. And there's an opportunity to help design a better future for the industry. Things are changing so fast that now is just a, a great time to come and help design a modern industry. Sounds like a good idea to me. Okay, bear with me. Over the next 15 years, this is perhaps the story I'd tell to non-miners about what I, what I would hope for the industry, which is humankind deeply depends on this earth. Our earth dependency entirely constitutes our existence and the society and the technology and the way that we want to live means that we we have to use the Earth's resources. And we're only going to get more dependent on the Earth's resources as we progress and build that future that we're all working towards, that clean energy, that green future, that future that has the welfare and wellness of, of people and communities in front of mind. So I wouldn't look at mining's future the way that you look at mining's past. I would look at mining's future as one that's entirely in your hands to, to build, whether that means 
you know, you're a science background, an engineering background, a law background, an economics background, an arts background. We need it all. And I would encourage you to think if you're someone skeptical about the feeling of mining or skeptical about natural resources, then that only means that the opportunity is there for you to actually do something in that space. And so what I would really plead with people who are thinking about the future of how human humans operate on this earth is that get into something like mining and, and, and be part of that reimagining of it because there's a lot of power in fixing something rather than just commentating on something. Uh, and if that's the attitude you can take, then really the world's your oyster. Wow. I am leaving here absolutely inspired and I think I might go and apply for a job in this industry. <laughs> I hope many of our listeners do. Thank you so much for uh, being here with me, Holly and Rachel. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Katie and Rachel. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, please head to thinkactdifferently.com.au. This episode was recorded on Ghanaland at Podbooth Studios, studio engineer Rory Nunk, and produced and edited by Lauren McWhorter.